Turn this thing on. See if I can figure this out. This, this is too much. Way too much. We've got to figure out a different system. All right. We're ready to begin. Does anybody know what we're studying in Colossians today? Anybody know what verse we're on? <laughs> Jamie's been gone for a while. Do what? 318. So somebody does know what we're studying, huh? Well, <laughs> David said that. David said that's why everybody's gone. Yes, my thought exactly. Listen, if if we were studying Colossians this morning, wait a minute. If we were studying Colossians this morning, would we we would be on 318, which basically says this: wives submit. That's what it says. All right, but. Since so many people are on vacation, I think some people were paying attention and knew where we were going to be, so they are gone this week, alright? Now, the rest of you either weren't paying attention, you didn't know where we were, or, of course, the ladies that are here, it doesn't matter. You guys are all lined up with this anyway, so it doesn't matter to you. <laughs> yeah, can we do 19? No, what we're going to do is, uh, we're going to do 18 next week. You know, I did, I, of course, I didn't want to do this with my wife gone either. So we're going to do 18 next week. Uh, so, ladies, I would encourage you to be here. Um, you'll probably get something out of it. All right. Well, this morning, what I want to talk about is how to share the preterist view. Now, it's not the easiest or the smartest thing to just be talking to someone and say, I think Jesus came back. You know, I mean, although I did that recently, we were at the Bailey's house and there was another couple there and we were talking and Thelma and I got into a discussion on predestination, uh, election, reprobation, superlapsarianism. And as we were having this conversation, the neighbor said, well, what about the age of accountability? And I said, she goes, what age is that? And I said, conception. I said, I believe life begins at conception and you're accountable from the time you're conceived. According to Romans 5.12, we're born in sin. So you're, there's not an age there. And then so we talked for a little bit and this lady said to me, something about the second coming. And when she said something about the second coming, everybody there gasped like, <gasps> don't ask that question. So I just kind of reared back, took a deep breath and boom, you know. <clears throat> and you could just see the shocked, stunned look on their faces like, you believe What? But I mean, they had some good questions and they left there. They weren't mad and they still, they're the Bailey's neighbors, they still talk to the Bailey's and they've actually made some comments about their seeing some things as they read the scripture. So how do we introduce this? I mean, how do we get in a position where we can actually talk to people with this, about this without them throwing dust in the air and tearing their clothes and doing that kind of stuff? Well, I've come up with a handout and I didn't make copies for you today, but if you want a copy, I will give you a copy. It's four pages. And I use this when I'm talking with someone. If I'm going to talk to somebody, and I know ahead of time, of course, and, and I'm going to have an opportunity to talk to somebody, I give them this, and I literally go through it because it's mostly Scripture. But I want them to see the Scriptures. I want them to see what we're talking about so they can see this is something that I'm not just making up. But before I share with you this morning how to share preterism, a good question I think we need to first answer is, why share preterism? I mean, people always say to me, well, why is this important? Does it really matter? And my answer is always the same, maybe simplistic, but it's this. Does truth matter? Because if truth matters, then preterism matters. If truth doesn't matter, then we don't need to be studying the Bible anyway. But if it does, then we need to find out what is the truth here. 
Well, that's kind of a simplistic answer. For a less simplistic answer, let me give you several reasons why preterism is important, why your view of eschatology matters. First of all, I don't know if you realize this or not, eschatology is a major theological issue in the Scriptures. R.C. Sproul says two-thirds of the New Testament is either directly or indirectly eschatological. Two-thirds. Now, I don't know that I agree with these numbers, but the, the point is there's a large percentage of Scripture that deals with the subject of eschatology. Other experts say 25 to 30% of the whole Bible is eschatological. That means that eschatology is important. That means we should understand, if we can, what the Bible has to say about eschatology. So that's one point. Point number two is this. Salvation is tied to eschatology. Salvation is tied to eschatology. So how much salvation do you currently have? That depends on your eschatological view. See, people often ask the question, if you were to die right now, do you know where you'd spend eternity? Well, where do you go when you die? That depends on your eschatology. Do you understand that? It depends on your eschatology. You ask a Christian, if you were to die now, where would you go? They'll say, well, I'm going to heaven. Go to a Christian funeral. What do they talk about? This person's in a better place. You go to any funeral and they say that, but, you know, <clears throat> they don't have a clue. But they're always talking about, you know, they're in heaven. As soon as someone dies, they go to heaven. But eschatologically, that's not right, depending on what they do, really do believe. Take your Bible, look at John 3.13. We're going to look at some scriptures here. Jesus says this. Jesus said, and you might want to mark this because you get in a discussion with somebody, you can share some of these scriptures. 3.13, Jesus says, And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. So Jesus says, listen, at this point in time, I'm talking to you, nobody's gone to heaven. Now, let me ask you that. Has, it, has that changed since then? And if it changed, what changed it? Well, turn over to John 13. <clears throat> In John 13, it says, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, Where I am going, you cannot come. Well, where is Jesus going that they can't come? He's going to heaven. But he says they can't come. Look at verse 36 of John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me later. You can't come right now. Nobody goes to heaven yet. Now drop down to chapter 14 of John and look at verse 2. <clears throat> Jesus said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, if Jesus has not yet returned to receive His disciples to Himself, which most people say He hasn't, then John 3.13 is still in effect. No one's ascended to heaven. Because He says, I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I get done, I'm going to come get you and take you to that place. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4.15. It says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, so the subject here is the coming of the Lord, the people that are alive and remain, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
Then, epita, after that time, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus shall we always be with the Lord. Before anybody goes to heaven, what has to happen? The dead in Christ have to rise first, according to this text. There has to be a resurrection. Now, most people believe there hasn't been a resurrection because the resurrection is tied with the second coming. No second coming, no resurrection. Guess what? Nobody is in heaven. But yet, you go to the funerals and what are they talking about? They're futuristic in their eschatology and yet they're saying these people are in heaven. That can't be. Heaven was not open until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. You know, this is the only place in the New Testament where the return of Christ is called the second coming or refers to a second coming. His appearing is to be for salvation. Peter said to those first century saints that their salvation wasn't complete. In 1 Peter 1.5, he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation was ready to be revealed. When? In the last time. Which would happen at the return of Christ. So if Christ has not returned, salvation is incomplete and no one has gone to heaven. We have an incomplete salvation. It's not finished. So does eschatology matter? Well, does salvation matter? Where are you at in your salvation? How much do you have? Thirdly, the third point on does eschatology matter, I think is just one word. Israel. Israel. I mean, do people have different views about Israel today? You want to get in an argument real quick? You want to get in a heated political discussion real quick? Just bring up Israel. Alright? What do you do with a modern day nation of Israel? Is God's prophetic calendar tied to that nation now? Is it very important how we treat them and what we do? I mean, this Zionism has affected us in our foreign policy. The way we treat Israel, the things that we do. And I'll tell you, I don't blame most of those Arabs for their hatred towards the United States. And the reason is because we are continually supporting and encouraging Israel who is continually mistreating them. Well, let me give you a parable. Matthew chapter 22. It says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he set his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they're not willing to come. Well, the king in this parable is God, the son is Christ, and those invited are the nation Israel. Verse 4 says, And he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle, and killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. And went their ways, one to the farm, another to the business. And the rest seized the servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent on his armies to destroy those murderers and burn up their city. What is verse 7 speaking of? Well, it's very clearly a prediction of AD 70 and the judgment on Jerusalem. Verse 8 says, And he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways... And as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together those who were found, both bad and good, and the wedding was filled with guests. Israel lost its privileges. And the nation, they were invited to come. They turned their back on the Lord Jesus Christ. They rejected Him, and God destroyed Him. Most of the parables deal with Israel and their rejection of Christ. 
and God's destruction of them. You know, John the Baptist came on the scene, and when he came on the scene, he came preaching judgment. He says in Matthew 3, 9, and 10, And think not to say to yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. He's speaking to the nation Israel. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And you go to Galatians, and it says, You are the seed of Abraham if you believe in Christ. He says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And that's a prediction, again, of the judgment coming on Israel because of their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel's done. God destroyed the temple. He wiped that place out. There's no more sacrifice. There's no more priesthood. It's over. But a faulty eschatology today continues to drive foreign policy. And we think we've got to support them no matter what they do. We've got to protect them because we somehow feel they are God's chosen people. And that's not true from Scripture. So eschatology affects how you view Israel. And let me give you one more point, and we could probably deal with a whole lot more, but for a fourth point, is your eschatology important? Well, it affects your worldview. Your eschatology does. If you believe that you're living in the last days... And the world's about to end at any moment. It affects how you think. It affects how you live. And I know, I remember when, when Kathy and I were first married, before we ever started having children. I mean, my worldview was affected by my eschatology. And I believed very strongly the Lord was going to return at any moment. I anticipated that return. When we had a child, our first child, I was under the strong conviction she would never reach school age. I just never believed she'd ever make it to five because I figured the Lord was coming back and He was coming back soon. So I never cared and planned about it. I mean, I figured we kind of had a commitment that we talked about we would send him to Christian school or homeschool, but all of a sudden she's five and I'm like, man, I was kind of confused. I thought the Lord would be back by now. And I mean, why save for retirement? Why do a lot of things if we're just going to get sucked off the planet any second? None of that makes any sense. But if you feel you're here, this is your life, you're here for the long haul, then you get involved in some social issues. Try to change some things. Try to fix some things. You know, dispensationalism had a little phrase that went, why polish brass on a sinking ship? You know, the thing's going down, don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about trying to fix anything up. And so, so Christians really drew back from social issues. They drew back from politics. They drew back from so much influence that they needed to be in. It affects your worldview. If you realize we are here, we are living in the kingdom of God, we have a mandate to be salt and light, to affect the people, to have an influence on our culture, then you plan for the long haul. You work for the long haul. So I believe eschatology matters. And since it matters, I think we need to be looking for opportunities to share the preterist view. And we need to have a plan to share it. I like to wear a hat that uh, <clears throat> Bill Gann bought me when he was here. The hat says, Preterism, it's about time. His wife came up with that slogan. I think it's great because it has a double meaning there. It is about time. It's about time we start sharing it, and it's about time. And I'll wear that hat, and people look at it, and they go, Preter, preter, Preterism. I says, Preterism. I was, I was, there was a guy at the beach, a Christian guy, he's a Mennonite, and he looked at my hat and he said, Preterism? I said, yeah, Preterism. And I was waiting. You know, I'm like, I'm like cocked, you know. 
okay, ask me, what does that mean? He never said another word. I was like, thank God. Because I don't want to just, I'm not going to push it if they don't ask, you know, but, but I'm trying to create opportunities for them to ask, hoping that I can get in this conversation. And uh, Kathy and I have been doing some things with this other Christian couple that they don't even know what our eschatology is. And, and a couple of times the guy has said something, but I got a real theological question for you. And I'm like, oh, great. I hope it's around the second. But it hasn't ever got to that yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of anxiously awaiting that, that opportunity. But when I do have opportunity and when, when it comes to a point when I can share with somebody, I like to give them a handout. Because, you know, you can talk about things, but I think if they see the Scriptures... I mean, it's the Word of God. It's living and active. It's powerful. Sharper than a two-edged sword. If they can go over the Scripture itself, I think it has a much greater impact than any argument I can give them. So I hand them the Scripture, uh, this handout, and then I start going through this. The thing I start with is I start with hermeneutics. And I ask them, do you understand hermeneutics? And most Christians have never heard of hermeneutics. You know, they, they don't know what it is. They don't understand it. So I explained to them, hermeneutics is a science of interpretation. Any written document is subject to interpreting. So we have to have laws for interpreting so we don't just make it say whatever we want to. And then I talked to them about the principle of audience relevance, which seeks to discover what the original audience understood a passage to mean. And then I use this phrase, and this phrase sometimes gets some people really wound up. I tell them, the Bible is written for us. It is not written to us. And I usually get some big gasps when I say that. <gasps> what do you mean? You know, and then I say, all right, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Show me in here the book of Colleen. Now, there's Timothy's in there. Titus is in there. Philemon. Show me. Well, it's no, no book to Colleen. All right. How about to the saints in Chesapeake? That's not in there either, is it? Colossians, Philippians. Well, well if it's written to you, where's the passages written to you? See, it's... All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But it's not written to us. It's written for us. So if you get them to understand that, that's a very important principle. So we need to understand what Scripture meant to its original audience. I mean, if you get these people to understand, all right, this stuff in the Bible was written to particular people. And we've got to figure out what was he saying to these people. When we understand that, then we can say, what does it mean to us? So I ask them to ask, themsel ask themselves the following questions as they read through these scriptures. Who was it written to? When was it written? When did they expect Christ to return? Now take your Bibles and follow along with me if you will. I'm just going to run through some scriptures here. And uh, like I said, it's the Word of God that's important. And if you can show them how many passages actually deal with this topic... That alone can stun them into, into thinking there's something here. Start at Matthew chapter 10. And I, this is not an exhaustive list of scriptures by, by any means. There's a lot more scriptures that could be used. But I think you get the point from, from this sample. Matthew 10:23. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. All right. They're, they're being persecuted. He said, when, when they get persecuted here, just go into another city. Then he says, Assuredly, I say to you, who's the you? It's his disciples. You will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. If they're persecuting you here, just go over there. Go to a different city. You won't have covered all of them before I come back. Hmm. 
if you just stop and focus on that scripture, it's kind of eye-opening. But let's go to Matthew 16. This has got to be one of my favorites. Because this is hard to get over. When you say, you know, when you talk about the soon passages, people always say, well, soon doesn't mean soon. You know, a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. You know, and they go, I'm like, okay, right. So can't God tell time? You know, he doesn't know what soon means. But this one's hard to get over. Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man will come in his glory with his Father, with his angels. He's going to reward every man according to their works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here that shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, if you read explanations on this, they say it refers to the transfiguration, which was six days later. Yeah, I would say there's a good chance some of them will still be alive six days later. You know, that, that, that just doesn't fit into the whole idea. And at the transfiguration, He didn't come in glory with the angels and reward everybody. He's saying to these disciples, some of you are going to be alive until I return. Now that should make a stop right there and think, well, wait a minute. Then either he returned or there's still some disciples alive. And I had a guy go with that argument. He said he believed there were some disciples that were still alive. I'm serious. This guy was a Marine who had come from Quantico. He was te- And I said, what did you do in Quantico? He goes, I was teaching logic. And I'm like, boy, this scares me. I mean, he's teaching logic. and Because I said, you really have three options w- with this text. Okay. Jesus was wrong. He didn't know what he's talking about. That's an option. Second option is he did what he said. He, he came back. Third option is some disciples are still alive. He goes, yeah, I think there's some disciples still alive. I said, you think there's some 2,000? He goes, I do. I'm like, okay. That's one option you can have. You know, if you ever find him, I'd like to talk to him. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 34. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, the generation, he said, was the generation that he was speaking to. He says that generation in the Bible is a 40-year period. You people that I'm talking to, within a 40-year span, all right, you're going to see all these things take place. Look at John 21. This one used to always bother me. John 21, 22, Jesus says to Peter, uh, it says, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man, referring to John? And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Peter, if I want John to stay alive till the second coming, that's none of your business. You follow me. Peter didn't make it. John did, according to tradition. And then you go into the book of Romans, and Paul talking to the Roman Christians in uh, 1311 says, And do this knowing the time now, that the high time you awake out of your sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the work of darkness, let us put on the armor of light. They're talking about something that is, that is very near, the night it's almost over, day is dawning. And in 1620 he says, The God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. He's going to crush them, crush him under the Romans' feet, he says, very shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I said there's a lot of verses here that I'm not covering. I'm trying to get a sample here. 
because I want them to see that this is a broad subject. It's not a few isolated verses. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 says, So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first century Corinthians were waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were waiting for this. Look at chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 29. It says, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. It's passing away. It's leaving. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. He says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. The end of the ages have come upon these people right there in that first century. The age was ending. Look at chapter 15 and verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now wait, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says, we're not going to sleep. We, Paul and the Corinthians, we're not all going to sleep. We shall all be changed. We, Paul and the Corinthians. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised. We shall be changed. You know, Paul could have said, those living shall be changed. They shall be changed. He didn't say that. He said, we because he expected it in his lifetime. If you go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He began this work. He's going to keep this work going until Christ returns, is what he says. And then in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And then you get to Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Again, this idea of we. We. Him and his audience of first century believers. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's interesting. He's writing to the Thessalonians. He says, I want your spirit, I want your body to be preserved blameless until the Lord returns. Intact. All of you until the Lord returns. They were expecting it. In Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.14, Paul says that you keep the commandments without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Timothy, I want you to keep on the path. I want you to keep doing what you're doing until the Lord returns. Paul says this to Titus in Titus 2, chapter 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to live righteous, holy lives, and I want you to keep looking for the return of Christ. Now, you know, if it was going to happen, again, Paul's writing under the inspiration of Scripture, inspiration of God. So if, if God is not going to do anything for thousands of years, why is he telling these people, giving them this anticipation? 
I had a lady tell me one time, God did this because He wanted everybody ready. So I said, He knew He wasn't coming, but He told him He was because He wanted him to be ready. And she goes, yeah. I said, isn't that deceptive? She says, kind of. But God was tricking him. He knew He wasn't coming, but He wanted him to think He was. The writer of Hebrews says this. And Hebrews, as we get to Hebrews, we get near the end of that transition period where we're getting closer to the time of Christ's return. In 1037, he says, For yet a very little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. The time's getting short. It's getting real close. Look at James chapter 5 and verse 7. James says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Wait for the Lord's coming, James is saying. And then he uses this illustration. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? You also be patient. You, you first century believers that I'm writing to, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord's at hand. It is very near. Don't grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Then you go to Peter, 1 Peter 1.13. He says, Therefore, gird up the lords of your, loids of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hang on, God is bringing grace when He returns. 1 Peter 4.7 But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayer. It's coming. It's close. Now let's go to the book of Revelation. Most people are familiar with the book of Revelation. My question to them is, who is it written to? Do you know? Who is, a, who is Revelation written to? The seven churches in Asia Minor. Any seven churches? No, seven specific churches that he names. These were real, literal churches with people in them that existed at that time, and that's who he's writing to. And he says in one one the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show His servants, which things must shortly take place. Now, if you're living in one of these churches and you get the letter, you say, good, these things are going to happen quickly. Verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things that are written for the time is near. So he starts the book. These things are going to take place shortly. The time is in. That's how he starts it. He brackets this book with time statements. Jesus said specifically to the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2.25, Hold fast what you have until I come. Hang on. Hang on until I get back. Jesus said to the first century church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3.11, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Specifically, He tells the Philadelphians this. I am coming quickly. And then you get to the end of the book. Turn to Revelation 22. This is amazing because, again, this book is bracketed with time statements. Starts that way, it ends that way. Everything in between is covered in these time statements. 22.6 says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Revelation 22.10 He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is at hand. You go back to Daniel. What did he tell Daniel? Seal them up. Why? It's a long way off. It's a long way off, so seal them. That was like a 600-year period. Now, he says, don't seal it. The time is here. It's at hand. Revelation 22.12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. Revelation 22.20, He who testifies of these things says, Surely 
I'm coming quickly. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Brackets the whole book. Now keep in mind audience relevance, which seeks to discover what the original audience understood a passage to mean. He said He was coming soon. He said His coming was at hand. He said He was coming in the lifetime of those He was speaking to. He said He was coming in their generation. You cannot read the New Testament without seeing the eminent expectations they had for the return of Christ. And this causes problems for many. I mean, you read these, and if you read it honestly and allow it to say what it says. You know, the interesting thing is, people take these time statements and they make them figurative. Then they take the prophetic language and they make it literal. Where he's going to literal have seven heads and a literal ten horns, and soon, well, that doesn't mean anything. You know, and they just really turn the scripture on their head. The apocalyptic language they take literally. The literal didactic language they take figuratively. The self-proclaimed atheist Bertrand Russell wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. And part of his argument was the fact that you read the New Testament over and over, Jesus said, and His disciples picked up on it, He's coming soon. He never did. Therefore, He was wrong the Bible's wrong, it's not inspired, and that's why I'm not a Christian. I mean, that was his argument. And then that really opened the door for liberal theology, and it began to flood in, and they began to attack the Scriptures. And you know what the answer to them was? Dispensationalism. You know what dispensation? Well, that's right, it does say that. And he didn't do it. We've we got a dilemma here. I know how we'll fix it. Okay. God stopped the clock. He was going to do that. But the nation Israel rejected him, so he put a stop on it. Everything holds, everything stopped. Now he is dealing with the church age, a whole other thing that has nothing to do with Scripture. And then when the church age is over, he's going back, and then the clock starts again. And that's what they—that's where dispensationalism theology was literally developed to try to help answer these arguments. You know, to try to, you know, in a sense, maintain the integrity of Scripture. Bertrand Russell said this. I am concerned with Christ as He appears in the Gospel narratives as it stands. And there one does find some things that do not seem very wise. For one thing, He certainly thought His second coming would occur in the clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. There are a great many texts that prove it. Remember, this is a, a non-Christian writing this. That was the belief of His early followers. It was the basis of a good deal of His moral teaching. Now, Russell used these New Testament imminent texts as proof that Jesus could not be the Son of God. And modern Christianity in general has not really been able to answer adequately these objections at all. Believers today need to address directly the vast misunderstanding that exists currently regarding these eschatological passages. We need to deal with them and say, look, Jesus did what He said He was going to do. In Matthew 24, 34, where he says this generation will not pass away, he very plainly and very clearly tells his disciples that all the things he had mentioned are going to come to pass in their generation. And if you look back in the context of Matthew 24, it talks about the gospel being preached in all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the second coming of Christ. And this is so clear that it greatly troubles those who hold to a futuristic eschatology. Now, 
In the essay, The World's Last Night, found in the essentials of C.S. Lewis, is this quote. And this quote is, has been debated as to whether C.S. Lewis actually said this or Lewis is quoting somebody else. And I've gotten the book out of the library and read through it myself, and I can't tell you. I mean, it's hard. I mean, the way it's written, I can't tell. Is he saying this himself? Is he quoting somebody? I, I think I kind of lean towards the fact that Lewis is quoting somebody here, but he goes on to agree with them. So whether Lewis actually said this or he is quoting somebody, he, he tends to, to lean this direction in this book, and I would challenge you to check it out of the library and read it. But let me read to you what, what is in this book. Lewis says, The apocalyptic beliefs of the first century Christians have been proven to be false. It is clear from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. You understand that? I don't think most Christians understand that today. They did. They expected it in their lifetime. He says this, And worse still, they had a reason, and one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. He said in so many words, This generation shall not pass till all these things be done. And he was wrong. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anybody else. This is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible, end quote. Is he right? Was Jesus wrong? I can't accept that. Can you? Fortunately, Christ did keep his promises to come to that first century generation. And his coming was a spiritual coming, the way he intended it to be in A.D. 70, in the destruction of the temple. He was coming to end the old covenant, coming to consummate the new. And this highly verified historical event signified that sin finally had been atoned for. That all Christians from generation to generation could live eternally on earth and in heaven without separation from God. Now, when you get people to this point, you've shared all the Scripture, you've tried to get them to see, you know, the importance of this, the significance of it, that this is truly what the Bible says He was coming soon, and the consequences of, you know, if He didn't come. I usually say to them, now I'm sure you're thinking, if the Lord did come back in 8070, how do we miss it for all those years? And I've had that question thrown at me so many times. If this is true, how could the church miss it for all these years? My response to that is one word. Know what it is? Reformation. You ever heard of the Reformation? Well, what was discovered in the Reformation? Hey, salvation is by grace through faith. Wow, a neat discovery. We don't earn our salvation. You know, they're dealing with the issue of, of life and death at the Reformation. Why do we need a Reformation to fix this after all these years? The church had missed it for all these years. And so it's not a big deal to me that the church missed this all these years. This is not an issue of heaven and hell. So it's not that big a deal, you know, to me. How could they miss it? Well, if you go back and look at the history, it's, it's easy to find out how they did miss it. You know, they expected it any time. And then when the Lord returned, some of them understood it. Some of them didn't understand it. And you got people putting out writings after that, that they're all confused. What, what really happened? What didn't happen? But our problem is we have preconceived ideas. It's because our paradigms that we have developed. And we think the second coming is an earth burning 
globe-melting event that destroys the whole world. That's our view of most people's view of the second coming. And so, I submit to you that either Scripture is wrong about the time of the second coming, and therefore it's not inerrant, or our paradigms are wrong about the nature of the second coming. Which one of those are you more comfortable with? An incorrect paradigm on your part or an uninspired Scripture? See, and here's the thing you have to understand. Time defines nature. And we have an incorrect view of the nature of the second coming. We think it's physical. We think it's earth-shattering, globe-burning. Look at me at a Scripture that I think really destroys that whole thought process. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's writing to these Thessalonians, and he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. So we got the subject there. He's talking about the second coming. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Someone was saying, you missed it. The second coming happened, and you missed it, and the Thessalonians are all upset. And Paul's trying to calm down. Don't worry. I don't want you to be upset about that stuff. How is it that the Thessalonians thought the second coming already happened? If they had the same view of it as we have, could they have possibly thought they missed it? No. Not if they thought it's what we think it is. I mean, people think today the earth's going to burn and all this. All right, then how are you going to know you can't miss that, right? So if they're still alive and they look out their window and the grass is still growing, the trees are there, the stars are still... Okay, we obviously didn't miss it. And the interesting thing here is Paul didn't correct their ideas. He didn't say, well, you guys are messed up. If it happened, you'd know it. He didn't say that. He said he didn't say, hey, look, guys, you can't miss that. Don't be so stupid. No, he didn't correct their understanding because their understanding wasn't wrong. They weren't sure if they'd missed it or not. And he didn't say, look out your window, it's still there. He just simply told them it hadn't happened. They must have viewed the nature of the second coming differently than we do. And you know, really, nowhere in the Scriptures do they teach that the physical creation will be destroyed. I know it talks about heaven and earth being destroyed, but if you understand that language from the Old Testament, it's not talking about physical things. It's talking about governments and nations. Listen to a promise God made in Genesis 8.21. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. I promise from God, I'm not going to do that ever again. And people say, well, it says, as I have done. In other words, he won't drown him, he'll burn him. Uh, that makes me feel better. I mean, God made me a promise, don't worry, I will never drown you again, I'll burn you next time. I feel much better about that. The promise is, you know, don't, doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy? God made you a promise, I'll kill you a different way, basically. That's not what he's saying. The promise is, I'm not going to do that again. That's the promise. And I close my presentation by telling him, until... January of 1997, I'd never heard the preterist view. Preterist simply means praetor, comes from the Latin, means past. So I obviously couldn't believe what I didn't hear or didn't know. And when a friend first shared it with me, I thought he's nuts. 
I mean, I really thought he was crazy, but yet there was this nagging thing in my heart that said, you better look at this. You better look at this. And I had the book sitting on my desk that he had given me for two weeks. And I was afraid to look at him because I felt that there was something there. Because I, all this time I'd been studying eschatology and never could, really had some nagging doubts because of the end of Revelation, all those quickly soon statements just bothered me. So I sat down, I began to study it, and I saw that though it went against the majority of what the church was teaching, it went right along with what the Bible was teaching. And I had to make a choice between tradition and Scripture. And that choice was easy for me, because I'm not too much of a traditionalist, so it was easy. I go with the Scripture. And, and I tell them, if this view is new to you, which to most people you talk to it will be, I'd ask that you just openly and honestly look at it. Look at what it's saying. Almost every book in the New Testament, Testament talks about a soon return of Jesus Christ. And it's very hard to make 2,000 years soon by any hermeneutic. You can't make 2,000 years be soon. But the major issue to me in all this, and this is what's important, the major issue with this is not eschatology. The major issue here is the inspiration of Scripture. That's what's important. That's what my fight is. That's what I'm willing to battle about. Inspiration. Because if Jesus said, I'm coming soon, then He had to come soon. If He said He was coming to that generation, He had to do it. He had to keep His Word. And to me, that's what's important. So I would challenge you, you know, either we've got these time statements all wrong, or the rest of the world has this whole idea wrong about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would challenge you, you know, take the Scriptures, confront people with them, share with them these time statements. Preterism, it is about time. It's about time because, you know, any non-believer reading the New Testament can see that they expected this thing to happen then. And if you can just get this principle of audience relevance and understand a little bit about how to interpret the Bible, you can realize it was happening back then in the first century. And then from there we can construct and try to put things together. We don't have all the answers. Probably never will have all the answers. But I understand this. It gives me really great comfort when I understand that Jesus said He was going to do something. He did exactly what He said when He was going to say it. When He was going to do it. And that brings me comfort to know that God keeps His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, it's amazing how much of Scripture actually does deal with this subject and how blind we can be to it. I pray that You would open our eyes. You would give us an understanding. Father, not that we could think we're spiritually elite or uh, that knowledge would puff us up, but Father, that we would humbly 